Good morning. morning. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Turn my mic on. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20 this morning. You may look at the screen and find the words marriage and judgment up there. Two things that we don't normally connect with each other. Uh, But we do find both of these things in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. And Jesus as well is known for connecting marriage with judgment. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable of the ten virgins. Basically, there is this wedding party that's going to take place, and these ten virgins take their lamp to this party. Five of them take extra oil for their lamps. Five of them do not. And when they get to the party, lo and behold, the bridegroom has uh, delayed. For whatever reason, we are not told, but he doesn't get there when he is expected to. And so they're sitting there, they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. The five that did not bring any extra oil for their lamps, their lamps stopped burning and they didn't have any oil to to make them to continue to burn. Uh, They asked the other five for some oil, but they said, no, we can't or we won't let our, our, our lamps won't burn. You'll have to go into town and buy some oil for your lamps. Well, that's what they did. But as they were going into, into town buying oil for their lamps, the bridegroom came, the wedding party started, the door was closed, and when they got back, they knocked on the door asking to be asking to come in and to be received into the party but they said no we can't the party has already started and you weren't here and so you missed it and Jesus basically says that that is going to be like judgment day for some people what are we doing to prepare ourselves for judgment is basically the question that Jesus is calling his audience uh, to answer Uh, That parable is all about preparing for judgment. But he's using it with uh, the idea of a marriage party or a marriage feast to communicate that idea. It's very similar. Now whether John had this in mind when he wrote this, I doubt he did. But I find a couple of interesting um, parallels to to, to that parable and what we find here in Revelation chapter 19. First of all, you got this great multitude crying out in in verse 1 of chapter 19. And in verse 6, we find something very similar happening when the wedding party, or when it's called that the bridegroom comes at the wedding party in Matthew 25. And then you also have this idea of a supper, a marriage supper that's being described in chapter 19, much like what is happening in Matthew chapter 25. And so, again, I don't know if John had this in mind, probably not, but there are at least a couple of things that relate to one another whenever we think about this. But when we think about Revelation chapters 19 and 20, and particularly with chapter 19, it's a direct carryover from chapter 18. Because in chapter 18, notice what we have in verse 9. It says, The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, and that her there is Babylon, or Rome is what that is, we will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. 
And so here you've got these people that, have, that are benefiting from the greatness of the Roman Empire. They get everything from Rome. They get their greatness from Rome. They've allied themselves with Rome. And so when Rome is burning, when it's being destroyed, they are weeping and wailing over that destruction because that means that they don't get the things that they used to get from Rome. Their prestige is kind of burning away as well. But in chapter 19, we contrast that with hallelujah. God's people are crying out, hallelujah! Because Babylon is not, uh, they're not around anymore. They are being destroyed. They're not oppressing us anymore. Our salvation with God is being solidified by the destruction of Rome. And so you've got this direct contrast in chapter 18, weeping and wailing over its destruction. In chapter 19, God's people are singing praises over its destruction. And so that leads me to talk about several different things that we find in chapter 19 that I think are significant for us to learn what its message is about. Here's the first thing. We've got four hallelujahs that are described in Revelation chapter 19. Now, when it comes to hallelujah, hallelujah is basically a combination between the Hebrew words hallel and yah. And so basically, praise Yahweh, or the way that most people pronounce it, praise Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord is what it means. And so you've got these, uh, this hallelujah being praised here, and I think it's connected as well to what we learn about from the Exodus. Because think about the different, the Hallel Psalms that we find in the Old Testament. Psalm 114, Psalm 115, Psalm 116, Psalm 118. Oh, these are described as the Hallel Psalms. And there are, there are different references to the Exodus in these Psalms. And that's something that we've seen several times in the book of Revelation about how these images remind us of the Egyptian plagues and God delivering His people from the oppression of the Egyptians. What better image to convey the love of God for His people, the delivery of God's people by Him? What better message to convey those ideas than the Exodus? It's not just relevant for God's people in the Old Testament. It's very much relevant for people in the first century church, but also us today in the church. And Revelation conveys that idea. But you've got these four hallelujahs, and they basically portray three different things. The first thing that they betray is the judgment of Rome. If you look at verses 1 and 2, it says you've got this multitude crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And so this judgment of Rome is being described by this hallelujah. They're praising for the judgment of Rome. The judgment of Rome is something that's going to bring a lot of comfort and a lot of peace to God's people. But in the next case, we have verses 3 through 5, we have hallelujah being described twice here. But this is all about the destruction of Rome. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! 
And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And so the destruction is going to bring peace and comfort too. And then finally, we have hallelujah in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. It used to be that Rome reigned. It used to be that they were at the top of the world. They were at the top of the food chain, we might say. But God's reign is stronger. It's more solidified. And God's people are given victory as a result of this. And so these four hallelujahs, as I mentioned, directly contrast the weeping and wailing of chapter 18, but they're very much a peace and a comfort for God's people. And I think the lesson that we need to learn here is that heaven will surely be worth it all. There's a song that we sing in our songbooks by this title. Heaven will surely be worth it all, worth all the trials that here befall. After this life and all of its strife, heaven will surely be worth it all. There are so many things that we have to go through that seem so terrible when they're happening. But when it's over, aren't you glad you went through it? Didn't you learn so much? Didn't you grow in so many different ways as a result of your struggles? I have friends that went into nursing school and they talked and they complained and they complained about how difficult it was whenever they were going through it. How am I going to get through this? Just hang on a little bit longer. Hang on a little bit longer. And now they are nurses and they love what they do. It was worth it. Heaven's the same way. It will surely be worth the struggles God's people have went through all kinds of struggles that we really can't understand in our country today. I can't understand what it means for a person to, tell, to, to come to me and say, worship me or you're going to be killed. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. I don't know how that feels. But that's what God's people were dealing with in the first century. But regardless of the trial... Regardless of the struggle, regardless of the temptation that Satan brings our way, we all have to endure it and it will all be worth it because of Judgment Day when we, are received, uh, when we receive our eternal reward. It will all be worth it. And so you've got four hallelujahs that's connected to this. You've also got two multitudes and two suppers. Let's talk about these two multitudes. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. And then in verse 6, you've got a gr the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And so this great multitude that's crying out is obviously a multitude that's, that's stationed in heaven. You think about the, the mighty peals of thunder crying out. That's something that's basically the same thing we saw back in chapter 4 whenever we were introduced to the throne room of God. From the very throne of God came these mighty peals of thunder, this lightning, these lightning strikes, all of those things came from the very authority of God. I'm also reminded of Exodus chapter 19 when the people of Israel are set there in front of Mount Sinai and they're waiting on God and God comes to them in thunder and lightning and smoke. 
And he gives them the Ten Commandments and they tell Moses, look, next time God wants to say anything to us, you tell us what he wants us to know. Don't have him speak to us anymore. Because these mighty peals of thunder were brought fear to the people of Israel. That authority, that power, that's where these great multitudes are coming from. The cry of this great multitude is coming from. But remember, as fearful as it is, as destructive as it sounds, it's still meant to bring comfort to God's people. But then you have two suppers. And these two suppers are very different. In verse 9 it says, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This marriage supper of the Lamb is supposed to be a very joyful supper. Because in verse 7 it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. This marriage supper of the Lamb is a joyful supper that's meant to be prepared for the bride, meant to be eaten by the bride, the bride of Christ, the church, God's people, those who are victorious over these people, those that have remained faithful, those that have not turned their back on God, those that continued in discipleship. But there's a supper of God in verses 17 and 18 that's very different. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is a very nasty supper, eaten by birds. How is that interesting? Well, in chapter 18 and verse 2, notice what the fall of Rome is described as. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. These scavenger birds, you know, we, we try to figure out, well, what was the purpose in God making them? Well, to clean up the world, to clean up the earth. When things die, I mean, they have to, they, they sit there and they clean up all of these different things. And so you got vultures and other, other types of unclean birds because they eat only dead things. But those are the type of birds that are going to be eating these dead bodies. Why? Because they're being destroyed. It's the supper of God. It's a supper of judgment. That's a direct contrast from the supper of the Lamb because not just is it a joyful supper for the bride, the supper of the Lamb, but it's also a supper that is enjoyed with Christ Himself. Why is that significant? And why do we get to share in that as His people? He is our Savior. And we are His bride. And that's why we get to enjoy that joyful supper and get, to eat, and get to eat that. But others, not so much. Those that have oppressed God's people, not so much. Those who have allied themselves with Rome and with the enemy, not so much. There's a supper of the Lamb and the supper of God.
But it all looks forward to verses, verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword, and came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It all looks forward to the final destruction, the final defeat, the final demise of the beast and the false prophet. Rome is not just destroyed as a nation, now they are thrown into the lake of fire. And in chapter 20, we're going to find a figure that meets them in that exact same place. And so what about chapter 20? Chapter 20 is one of those chapters that it's... One of the most difficult, let me back up here, one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, and I don't think it is that way in and of itself, I think it's been made to be that way because of the different interpretations, because of the different ideas that have come about the nature of the church, about the nature of Old Testament prophecy, about the nature of the scheme of redemption as a whole. People have changed their entire thinking on those things based on this one chapter. And I think for that reason, it's been made to be one of the most difficult. But it's really not. If we read it in its context. And so when we think about Revelation chapter 20, I want us to, I debated on whether or not I wanted to show you this, but I just find it way too helpful to leave it out. This comes from, you can learn more information about this in G.K. Bill's commentary on Revelation, page 992, and yes, it really is that big. Um, But basically, chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 4 are identical to each other. A heavenly scene in chapter 20 and verse 1. You've also got a heavenly scene in chapter 12 and verse 7. You've got an angelic battle against Satan in chapter 20 and verse 2. There's also an angelic battle against Satan in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. You've got Satan cast into the abyss in chapter 20 and verse 3. You've got Satan cast to the earth in chapter 12 and verse 9. Satan's names are given in chapter 20 and verse 2. You've also got names for Satan given in chapter 12 and verse 9. There's a limited amount of time that's spoken about in chapter 20 and verse 3. There's also a limited amount of time spoken of in chapter 20 and verse 12. Satan's fall and the saint's victory is talked about in chapter 20 and verse 4. The exact same thing is talked about in chapter 12 and verse 10. The saint's reign is communicated in chapter 20 and verse 4. And also the saint's reign is talked about in chapter 12 and verse 11. And so I say this, or bring this up to make two points. The first one is this. Chapters 19 and 20 are not meant to be read chronologically. So many people read chapters 19 and 20 as chronological events, and they're not meant to be read that way. I mean, yeah, you've got, for example, in chapter 20... In verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Yeah, the, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the, the lake of fire in chapter 19, and Satan is also thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 20. Yeah, you've got some things that relate to one another, but that does not mean that they are both supposed to be chron chronological events. And let me share with you what I'm talking about. In chapter 20, in verses 7 and 8, you've got this great battle that's going to take place. In chapter 19 and verse 19, you've got a great battle, a great war that's going to take place. And so that's relationship. But it's connected back to chapter 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The battle that's taking place in chapter 19, the battle that's taking place in chapter 20 is the exact same battle that we find in chapter 16. It's all the battle of Armageddon. And I'll mention this again, there was actually no battle that's recounted in the text. They assembled all of their, uh, all of their army against God, but their demise is just spoken of. There is actually no battle. And so it's just describing defeat but it's connected back to three chapters earlier. And so it's not meant to be read chronologically, chapters 19 to 20. I say this, bring this up to say the second thing, that our interpretation of chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, has to influence our interpretation of chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. Because it's basically the same thing, right? I mean, look at these seven comparisons. It's basically the same thing. And so whatever we said about chapter 12, and I don't have time to recount all of those things, we've already talked about it. Whatever is said about chapter 12, we have to say about chapter 20 as well. And so what do we have here? Well, basically we have the rise of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the establishment of the church, a snapshot of the death of Jesus, the establishment of the church, all the way up through judgment. That's what chapter 20 is communicating. And so let's talk a little bit more about that. And so as we move on, we've got the judgment of Satan that's being described in the first four verses. You got chapter, verse 2 says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. A couple of things I want to talk about here. You've got the idea of nations. What's connected with the nations? Well, you've got Satan being bound. He's being thrown into this pit. He's being thrown into this abyss so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. That is very different from the Jews only being God's people. When you think about the nations not being able to be deceived in the same way by Satan anymore, now you're talking about an unprecedented time in spiritual history. Now you're talking about a time when all people have the opportunity to be saved. It's not just Jews anymore. Now it's all nations. Doesn't mean that Satan cannot deceive in some ways, but he can't deceive everybody in the same way because when people obey the gospel, there is a certain amount of solidification to who we are and the type of lives that we are trying to live. Satan doesn't have power over us anymore like he used to because we are children of God. We are disciples of Jesus and that protects us from the harm that Satan can do. 
You've also got him being released for a little while. Why is he released for a little while? What is all of this about? Well, notice that here he's only thrown into the abyss. But he's released to later be thrown where? Into the lake of fire. And so Satan is being bound during the Christian age because of Jesus and what He has done for His people and those who accept Him as their Savior and and live as His disciple. He has no control over them anymore like He does the rest of the world. But after that's over, He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. The lesson I think we gain from this is that the Gospel severely decreases Satan's power. Severely decreases Satan's power. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, we basically in that chapter, we have people challenging Jesus because of what He is doing, casting out demons and performing other miracles. You're casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's what they're accusing Jesus of. But Jesus says, why in the world would I do that? If demons are servants of Satan, why in the world would I cast out a demon? It makes absolutely no sense. You can't cast out anything unless you first bind the strong man, he says. And so he likens it to a person going in to like rob a house, so to speak. If I go in, let's say I go in and I try to rob, some of you older people will get this reference, Andre the Giant was this big wrestler back in the day. A lot bigger, a lot stronger than I am. What if I went in that house and tried to rob him? How in the world can I rob his house while he's there unless I bind him first? He's going to overpower me. He's going to take me over. There's no way that I can do that. Jesus can cast out demons because He's overpowered the strong man. In other words, Satan. The one who controls the demons. He's overpowered them. Satan has no control over Jesus or His disciples. He can deceive us. He can tempt us. He will never stop trying. But if I keep my focus on Jesus, He cannot take control of my life any longer. The binding of Satan severely decreases his power. And that's all a result of Jesus' work on the cross. We also talk about the life of the church in verses 4-6. through says around the middle of verse 4, he says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, a couple of things that we need to talk about here. I think it's, it, it's what most people want to do is the reference to came to life and then resurrection. People naturally want to connect that with a literal resurrection from the dead. It's natural to connect that to those things, I think, for many people. But that's not what it's being talked about here. We can't, be talk, we can't talk about a literal resurrection of the dead because, of look, at, because look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
How does that pose a problem? Well, there is only, the Bible only talks about one resurrection of the dead that includes both the just and the unjust. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The dead in Christ shall come forth, those who have done good. The tombs are going to be open. Those who have come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One resurrection for both the evil and the good. Acts chapter 25 and verse 4, Paul says there will be one resurrection, a resurrection for both the just and the unjust. But it's only the people being raised in this chapter that have not given themselves to the mark of the beast. And so we can only be talking about one group of people. And so what are we describing here? We're describing a spiritual resurrection that takes place when people decide that they don't want to be held by Satan anymore. That they want Jesus to be your Savior. They give themselves to Him. They are baptized for the remission of their sins. They are raised up out of that water to walk a new life. A spiritual resurrection is what's being described here. The life of the church. And I think this, this section calls all of us to remember that every single day is a day that we need to obey the gospel. Not just for those who haven't, but for those who have. Sometimes people have to wake up every day and make a decision that they are or are not going to do something. Alcoholics may need to wake up every day and decide that they are not going to go to the bar or they are not going to take a drink. Drug addicts have to make a decision every single day that they are not going to take drugs today. It's an everyday decision. Maybe there's somebody that we know is bad for us and we like that person, we like to have conversation with that person, but we know that every single day I've got to tell myself, I need to stay away from this person because they are no good for me. Every day we have to make a decision. It's no different spiritually speaking. I may have obeyed the gospel 25 years ago, but if I fail to obey the gospel every single day of my life, that only cracks the door for Satan to come in and to deceive. So, let's continue to obey the gospel daily. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that the thief, and it's interesting there, the thief there are the Pharisees connected back in chapter 9, but the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundant. This whole chapter is connected to giving life to the church because Jesus is the only one that can give that abundant life. And then finally... The destruction of Satan is being described. Verses 7 and 8 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. You may be wondering, what in the world is this Gog and Magog all about? Well, except picture image taken from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We're probably familiar with Ezekiel chapter 37 and the valley of dry bones. Those valley of dry bones were all of a sudden given flesh and given life and given a new heart and they were raised. It's a depiction of what's going to take place in the spiritual resurrection. That's Ezekiel's prophecy of that. 
Well, in chapter 38 and 39, we've got a man, a king, a prince named Gog and a nation called Magog. They are going to oppress these people that have been raised from the valley of dry bones. And so John is taking this image and he is connecting it to what's going on here. That when Satan, even though the gospel bounds Satan to where he doesn't have the same power that he used to have, he still has the opportunity to wreak havoc upon the world. It's going to make life very difficult for God's people. He's going to try to take away the things that they hold dear. The most precious thing that they have, their salvation in Jesus. He's going to try to destroy that spiritual life. But it's not going to work. Because as I mentioned earlier, you've got this, this big war that's going to take place, this battle of Armageddon, but it all culminates in verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the frost prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then the remainder of the book or the remainder of the chapter is all about judgment and judgment day. I began the lesson this morning by recalling the parable of the talents, or excuse me, the parable of the ten virgins. And I basically did that not only because Jesus connects, um, Jesus connects uh, that image uh, with judgment and marriage together, but I also wanted to talk about that because it reminds us that we need to spend a lot of time preparing for judgment day. And I think what uh, it's hard for me to talk about this without talking about the parable of the talents too. Jesus goes right into the parable of the talents after this parable. Why? Well, you've got to prepare for judgment. Well, the parable of the talents is about what you do to prepare for judgment. Roll up your sleeves and get to work as a child of God using the things that He has blessed you with. You may be here this morning and you're not prepared for judgment. It may be that you are a child of God, but you haven't been reliving that salvation experience every day like I talked about earlier. You need to rededicate your life to Jesus. If that's where you are today, please make that decision now to ask for forgiveness, repent of your sins, and start living your life differently. Maybe you are here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel. You need to be baptized for the remission of your sins and allow God to add you to His church so you can start living as a disciple of Jesus. And Satan no longer has the hold on you that he used to have. If that's where you are this morning, the opportunity is available for you to change all of that. Please come this morning for any reason that you have need as we stand and sing. Psalm 91.